Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. We are live from the New Haven International Festival of Pancakes, Arts, and Ideas. And we're live from the Study Hotel. Hey, there's people here and stuff like that. We're in the lobby of the beautiful Study Hotel here on Chapel Street. You may hear people being checked in. Um, If you hear someone say, how many nights are you staying? That's actually not part of the radio show. Um, So, and we're here to talk about the festival. I'm going to introduce our guests in just a second. Um, I'm going to tell you a story first. So the festival, as I think probably most people know at this point, is a a melange of music and uh, theater and performance art and visual arts and uh, discussion panels and and lots of things that I'm not thinking of right now that we'll get to. And, And it kind of sprawls around downtown New Haven. And so yesterday I was here just going to stuff and kind of floating around and absorbing it. And I walked down to the New Haven Green where there's a lot of stuff going on, a lot of as they say, pop-up stuff going on. I guess this is sort of like a pop-up radio show right now. I don't know when things started popping up, but they do now. And so um, there was this kind of lovely little performance going on by this Chinese traditional dance academy. This It's called the Mulan Academy. And they are, were doing, it was all these very um, lovely Chinese women doing traditional Chinese dances. Um, and these dances also involve those kinds of fans that you see perhaps carried, that are, are carried folded up for most of the dance, but at critical moments in the dance, uh, the dancer kind of snaps her wrist and the fan pop, you know, fans out into a fan shape. So um, they got done with a few of their performances and then they invited the crowd to come up. And so the crowd consisted of some people who are here for the festival or noticing the festival, but I think also people who are kind of serendipitously just on the New Haven Green, and so there's some people there, and we're all kind of crowded into this little tent. And so a whole bunch of people came up on stage with these beautifully dressed and very stately uh, women who were these trained traditional dancers. And among them was this little boy. He's about five years old, African-American boy. That's actually, I think, important to this story. Uh, And the whole idea was that they were going to just teach them one of these dances. And so... You know, people were kind of learning at different paces. And so this little boy, he's very young, and he was very unselfconscious, and he was very eager to do this. He was having a little bit of trouble with some of the mirroring aspects of following somebody else's dance. He would kind of turn the wrong way at times. And it took him a little while to also master this thing with the fan because his hands are small. And, but he was getting it, and he clearly everybody was just nuts about him. He was just very cute. And, and, um, and suddenly there was a little pause, a little break, as they were kind of getting ready to maybe learn a new set of steps. And he suddenly started to improvise his own dance. And it was clearly uh, some hip hop uh, influence and this kind of almost quivering, jittering thing that he was doing. And he didn't do it for like 10 seconds. I mean, he did like a full little dance that he had just seized him. And, and at the end of it, and you know, he was like maybe dancing for at least a minute. And at the end of it, he kind of dropped into sort of a semi dab pose and snapped this fan out perfectly just as he did it. And the expression of ecstasy that went through this crowd, it was not just a laugh and not just a sigh and not just an ooh or an ah, it was like kind of all of those things. And the, the, the women who were there for the dancing were just 
they were unhinged with delight at this kid, you know? And then everybody went back to what they were supposed to be doing. But it was clear that this really kind of sublime moment had emerged from this just odd little thing that was happening there and, and it wasn't planned. And to me, that's, that's the best. That's sort of the best that a festival like this can be, that first of all, people from the community kind of maybe stumble into it serendipitously and the thing that's planned happens with a certain elegance uh, and, and sublime quality, sublimity, uh, and, but also this, these other things happen that can't possibly be planned and, and they almost rise above everything else. So that's the festival as it can be and we're going to talk about all the things that happen at the festival. We're doing a different show this year. We almost always come down here and do something, but I thought it would be fun if a lot of us went to a lot of things and then just sort of talked about the aggregate effect of that. So joining us, joining us here um, at the study, for the show, as panelists are Christopher Arnott, who writes about theater for the Hartford Current, Lucy Gelman, a reporter for the New Haven Independent and host of WNHH Radio's Kitchen Sink. Uh, Chad Herzog is director of programming for the International Festival of Pancakes, Arts, and Ideas. Um, and then a little bit later, it turns out, I found out yesterday, talking to Judy the photographer, that there's a group of people from the University of Vermont who are here asking, I think, essentially the same questions that we're asking. Like, what do festivals do? What happens at festivals? You know, what's the net effect of, of festivals? I, I, you know, what, what's happening here? Um, so some of them are going to join us, too. And we actually, some of us, we went through a fairly harrowing uh, performance, a very stressful, I mean, intentionally stressful performance last night. So we'll talk, tell you about that, too. So, um, Chad, I think I'm going to start with you and just, you know, I mean, I don't know if the Festival of Arts and Ideas has a mission statement. Uh, but I mean, in terms of, if you had to explain it to somebody who'd never heard of it before, what would you say? What's the purpose of it? Yeah, the festival is to bring people together. Mm -hmm. It's really to um, highlight New Haven and the region in which we live by bringing the world's best artists to our community and showcasing them um, in, a, in a very safe place, a place that we can try new things out on um, people. We can have people come together and experience um, the best arts and ideas from around the world. And, you know, I mean, Chris, as we were emailing around to you, you were saying that it's, it seems patterned after some of the European arts festivals. Explain yeah. Yeah, what you mean Well, by I've that. been covering the festival since it began in 96. Mm -hmm. And in those early years, they were still figuring out what to do. But the inspiration was always these small European festivals. Mm -hmm. uh, Edinburgh, of course. Mm -hmm. But also, um, I went to some of them with some of the organizers back then because they would say, come along and show, you know, see what we're looking at for mm -hmm. the festival. And I remember one in Salisbury where Cirque Baroque had put up a tent and there were talks. And the model was like indoor stuff, largely, mm -hmm. in, in towns that had beautiful greens and lawns so that you can't not use those too. Yeah. But uh, it comes here. I mean, you, you use the word festival in America and people show up and say, where are the, where are the rides? Where's the, <laughs> uh, where, you know, where are the clowns? Where, and in the early years, that was really tricky because they'd planned this thing, which was a, a certain type of performance series, and people wanted concerts on the green. And they figured that out very quickly mm -hmm. and gave both, but that's going to mess with your budget, that's going to mess with how you market it. Mm -hmm. And it's 22 years later, 20, it's, years. it's become this, it's become what it is, which mm -hmm. is a, you know, a New Haven festival for people who want that kind of festival and the other kind of festival. Right, and, and so the other kind of festival, just to be clear, is much more specifically focused maybe on 
the, the, the edgy on, part of arts, right? Yes, on you know, some cutting-edge artists who you probably haven't heard of yet, and that's why they've got them. You know, like, I mean, they're commissioning work from up-and-coming artists or artists who are at a certain point in their career. I mean, Kyle Abraham, the dancer, who is an excellent example, who came here two years later, he had a MacArthur grant, and now he's, like, you know, top of, top of his profession. So, okay, go ahead, Lucy. I can tell you have something to say. Oh, no, no. I, I think I was nodding um, because I, I still am uh, sort of in awe of Kyle Abraham's Abraham in Motion performance last year. I mean, that really stayed with me. But one thing that both Chris and Chad have touched on that I do hope we get to is the importance of uh, acts that experiment and kind of embrace a permission to fail. And I think that exists at the festival. So, see some more about that. Sure. Um, so I, I think we've seen this this year, but also in other years. It's really important to me as someone who writes about the arts from a critical perspective um, that you see works, you, you see works that are very polished. And certainly there are those at the festival, there are works that push the un envelope, that are transgressive, that are um, maybe culturally sensitive or make you think differently about how uh, we're using cross-cultural boundaries and language. But, but then there are also works that um, are drafts. And I think this is a huge part of festival culture, not only in New Haven, but, but sort of more nationally and more globally. This year, I think Aaron Jafaris's Belonging, which was a hip hop forum about gun violence, so sort of renamed from an oratorio about gun violence, was very much an example of that. So this was something that was commissioned uh, two years ago, Chad? Four years ago. Four years ago by Mary Lou Aleski. Um, was a uh, sort of a tandem piece to Stuck Elevator, Aaron Jaffaris' Stuck Elevator, mm -hmm. and, um, and was very much, so it was performed last, uh, last weekend at Long Wharf Theater, and, and was very much sort of still a draft, still figuring out what it was. And I appreciated that. I mean, I, I like seeing art when it's still evolving. Yeah, Chad, I feel like one of the virtues of a festival like this one is that it kind of challenges our idea of what the arts are. You know, I think for most of us, even those of us who think of ourselves as pretty engaged, you know, to most of us it still means that concert we went to and the play that we went to and maybe we saw an exhibition somewhere. You know, I mean, over the course of a, our, a year in our lives as art consumers, we see a lot of stuff, but we, I think we see stuff that kind of fits some kind of prescribed format of what our idea of the arts are. This, like, over the course of the last few days here, I feel very much as though I need to think much more expansively about this. Absolutely, and I think that's where a festival has benefits that maybe a traditional performing arts center does not always do so. Mm -hmm. um, where you go to a performing arts center, we can use you know the, the biggest names out there, Lincoln Center or the Kennedy Center, in their traditional series, and, and you kind of know that you're going to get this prescribed series happening to you. You're either going to get the dance series or the theater series or whatever you want to call it. And when you festival, when you go to a festival, you get a chance to really take it all in and, and really experience all kinds of performances in a short time period, whether it be over three weeks or ten days or two days, the fact that you can walk it, walk in from theater to theater or space to space and, and really um, experience. Did you almost just use festival as a verb? I might. It seemed like you were like about to. Is that we festival? How do we feel about that? I, I, fe I, th I feel like I got to go festival. I guess it's okay. Everybody yeah, does it yeah. these days. Everybody just verbs everything. So I don't know. I, I mean, I think all of you and Chris, obviously, as a critic, you're thinking all the time uh, about some of these questions about you know what we're seeing. What what do we see this year? I mean, did you? Do, I'll just ask you that question. Do you notice any kind of 
through line through some of the stuff that you're seeing this year? I've always come to it, I've always festivaled. Yeah. I've always come to it from the perspective of it being a larger, uh, uh, like a collection of stuff. That's always I mean, my question, is, yeah, yeah, is mean, it a collection? And it, it connects, and it, like partly your story where you opened up there with yeah. the, the kid. Um, I see that stuff all the time, and, and you see the same artists in other contexts, mm -hmm. at performance series or you know, at other theaters, and it ain't the same. It's this, whatever this festival does, it, it, it is unique to this festival. I mean, you know, Aaron's thing. I mean, we should say Aaron Joe Ferris is a, a local boy. He's I mean, a he went to Krauss, yeah. you know, mm. went to Wilbur Krauss, and he, um, uh, it's a really good example of the festival because it's a, a guy who's getting work produced around the country who is from here, and he works with an Asian artist who lives on the West Coast. And um, there's a huge local, I mean, I saw, I saw Belonging and I knew everybody in that audience, you know, but not from theater, from activism, you mm -hmm. know, from, you know, uh, I've lost my train of thought. Well, yeah, but right. I'm sorry, we were talking about Belonging and we need to realize that Aaron, yes, we, we benefited so much because he's from New Haven and he is this New Havener who knows the people and, and is as much a part of the city as really anyone else, but this piece is going to be performed all over the world. And yeah. remind um, people, with, people and might have lost a, the thread also of which piece this is, Chad. This is Belonging. And, and so, it's, I'm sorry. Yeah, explain what it is. So Belonging was this hip-hop oratorio yeah. on gun violence yeah. um, by, by Aaron Jafaris and Byron O. Young. And so when um, you, you look at their work together, and it's the second part of the trilogy. Lucy mentioned Stuck Elevator. Um, Stuck Elevator was this piece that they did at the festival four years ago, and it was during the festival. And a talkback, the way I understand this from Kathy Edwards and Mary Lou, is that it was during this talkback that somebody said, so what are you doing next? And they said, oh, we're going to do this piece about gun violence and, and um, mass shootings in, in our country. And they said, and we're going to do it at the festival. And they're the ones who, who said they're doing it here at, at the festival. And of course, the festival then fostered it along. But this is, this is a piece that could be performed in any city in this country and around the world. And, and we should say the festival was its third stop yeah. in a month and a half. It was in uh, San Francisco, Florida. No, not yet. It, it started, so March 17th, it premiered at right. Virginia Tech in Blacksburg, the, Virginia. And then it was in Florida. And then it was in Miami and now here. It, it will continue to live yep. on past the festival. What makes Belonging unique is that uh, the cast is made up of community members. Yep. So there were 30, 30 community members that made Belonging happen. I, uh, a couple of things I want to talk about. One of them is I, I've been to a few things here that, as is often the case with this kind of work, it try to blur the distinction between creator, performer, and audience. You know, and, and so I just came across the street from this uh, thing called In Between the Chaos, Pro oh. Chaos Project, uh, where you're it's very all these things are really hard to describe <laughs> but you're walking around in all these kind of rubber bandy substances at one point you are kind of uh, combined with three or four other strangers and you're kind of yoked together with this rubber bandy stuff and you have to move as one and then it becomes clear that one of the people who's yoked to you actually is part of the project and they're trying to pull you in kind of strange directions and and there are ways in which you sort of become musical instruments and and I think in the second segment, we're going to be talking a little bit more about Oni Chan, which is right next door, which is this sort of complicated post-apocalyptic game that ratchets up your anxiety levels uh, a lot. Um, and, and Lucy, that is sort of something that I think, once again, we're pretty used to art where we sit here, you stand up there on stage, 
you know. Yeah. Yeah, people people still get freaked out by participation. It's something that I I kind of I, I like. I um, jump into last night. I did see Oni Chan's piece, and I jumped in, and I'm glad I did. But um, but at the same time, I, I think people are used to this idea that okay, I find my seat, I sit down, I digest. I don't know an hour to three hours of performance, and certainly there is. Uh, that at the festival, but I find the events that do interact with the audience, and, and we should say a lot of the public events that are held on the New Haven Green and then uh, in New Haven neighborhoods sort of rely on this participatory aspect. There was a huge dance lesson on the New Haven Green, and I have a feeling that if everyone had stayed in their spots and not danced, it would not have gone super well. Right. But it's also it's a reminder of how walled off we are, too. Like at the, yeah. you know, in the Chaos Project, I had to hold hands with total strangers at the end. You know, I'm from Connecticut. I don't do that kind of thing. But we did, we did it to create some kind of capacitance effect that where a, a note is played by two of us slapping our hands together, and it's different depending on how much water content you have in your body or something. I don't, I don't entirely understand all this. But so, and so, Chris, one of the questions that I have about this, and I think it goes back to Lucy's point, that it's okay for things to to not be perfect, you know, for, for this to be a place mm -hmm. where things are tried, you know. And sometimes when I'm, I'm for example, we should talk about um, uh, manual cinema. Um, uh, manual cinema, I think, is, well, I'll have, since you're the critic, quick, quick uh, capsule description of what this oh, is. Oh, I tried to describe it. Um, <laughs> uh, it needs to be seen. I mean, it's yeah. an extraordinary piece with, um, when you hear it's got puppetry and uh, live projections and performance and an onstage or uh, orchestra, I mean really a, a sort of classical pop band, um, you still don't know what to think, but I, you know, I'm here to tell you that the shadow puppetry is extraordinary. I mean, it's not, they're not just finding interesting elements and seeing, like, you know, like saying, oh, wonder how this will work together. They actually do all this stuff really well. It's an original score. The, they have, the, the projectors they use are overhead projectors. Yeah, they're like, like very Like old school classroom, like yeah. old school classroom projectors, um, and they, they use, with that medium, they, they have, they'll, they'll have a silhouette of an actual performer interacting with a shadow puppet, mm -hmm. and it, the clarity is as if they're both the same thing. It, 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 first of all, that was really good, but it's still, it is impossible, impossible to describe what this thing is. It, it is... Um, it's really ingenious. And Lucy, you saw it, right, too, right? I did, yes. Yeah. It's, I, I, but I, find, I have to say, I'll just be the skunk at the garden party. These people are ingenious. I can't believe that they do what they do. They, they put all these self-imposed limitations and constraints on themselves, and they create these unbelievable effects, and there's only four people on stage. It seems like there like, has to be at least 12 people doing all this stuff, and somehow or other, I'm pretty sure it's just four of them. Um, it's four performers, and it's a five-piece band. Yeah, five-piece and, and Yeah, and, this, and the music is really interesting and really great. I found myself sitting there thinking, ingenuity and talent and even genius don't necessarily add up to compelling. Or they, they, they oh. like I ultimately wasn't compelled by this thing. I, I, I spent the whole time just in awe of their talent and their ingenuity. But I also thought, well, this is like a kind of a long way to. I, a couple of times I thought, hmm. just talk to me. Tell me what's going. On. <laughs> well, what it should be yeah. said. I mean, there is actually a narrative in the thing. Yes. There's oh, a, yeah. a story being told. Right. Um, and. Uh, a pretty uh, sharp satire on television. Not not, right. a, yeah. not the newest kind of satire on television. It's like shopping channel jokes. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's it's. Uh, I I I was moved. I mean, you were I moved. Yeah. Say, yeah. I, I think I was 
I could tell from the rest of the audience that most people were moved. I was like, you know, what were you going to say? Well, I guess two things. What I liked about it was, um, so Chris has talked a little bit uh, when we were emailing each other about, you know, the issue of access and accessibility. And I think for this, if you are like a TV or cinema dork, you get super into the mastery of it, but also the references to cinema and like mm. the language of cinema. But if you're not, if you're just, a, you know, a pedestrian coming off the street, um, if, if you're a pleb like me, um, you you're also into it because it's really fun to watch. I found it effective and affecting because I am from Detroit. Mm. And so a lot of that, like I, and, and so the references to the United auto workers, the references right. to the daughter being killed in a car crash in Dearborn, Michigan, that actually, um, sort of hit me on, on just a personal level. But, um, it, it is a work. I totally agree with Chris that needs to be seen. Uh, yeah. the, the craft is really impressive. And, and, and Chad, I also think that, just to go back to Lucy's original point, I think when you go to a festival like this, when you have to kind of give yourself permission to to maybe struggle a little bit with one thing, and I mean, I, you know, I, Chris, I don't know if you remember, did you see the Bristol Old Vic when they were here and did Midsummer Night's Dream? Oh, sure, yeah. yeah. I, that's the most amazing thing I've ever seen in a theater in my life, probably. So you know that's going to happen sometimes. You're going to go to something, and you walk out, and you'll say, you know what, I'm a different person now. Mm. And, and that then, does happen. And yeah. I think it, depending on who you are and where you're coming from and, and how you're getting to it, I heard those same comments coming out of Manuel Cinema. Right. I had somebody mm -hmm. who said that I've been to every festival for the last 18 years, and this piece finally moved me. Yeah. Um, and then we're hearing you say that it didn't work for me at all. And I've yeah. had other people tell me that they're in, in tears throughout. Right. And I think the one thing that we have to uh, maybe bring up here is we're talking about the rawness of it and maybe how it's not working and, and what's not or it feels new or, or isn't there is that we've so far we've talked about two pieces that are brand new mm -hmm. that are festival commissions that have not had a life outside of New right. Haven yet, right? So what does that piece look like a year from now exactly. and what is it going to be? And that's, that's really the, the role that we're playing in making sure that these new pieces are are being made, developed, and seen, and then you know somebody a year from now might be having that new Vic experience for you or old Vic. Yeah, I, you, an any yeah. chance thing. Uh, Lucy and I were both there last night. Um, that she has to come out and tell you that the thing's over. So that, that right. that's very raw too. I mean, it's it's got a lot of uh, improvisatory. <laughs> Thing. And I got to say, just quickly, the participation participation thing. I did the obnoxious thing and did not and refused to participate because I like to scribble in a notebook. Mm. It's my job, and they let me stand off in a corner, so that was cool. And I was pleased they made the decision because there's another writer there, not not Lucy, but somebody else who spent half the time in that quarantine tent <laughs> and missed you know missed an ascent up a ladder and a bunch of other cool stuff that was right. happening there we, so we, when does yeah, right. we don't we don't want to alarm people there the quarantine tent is actually part of the actual performance <laughs> that you're doing there's been no outbreak of SARS here in New Haven you don't have to worry you know I'm gonna just pause the conversation here we're gonna grab a break uh, since we're on the subject of that particular piece uh, we do have these uh, a group of uh, faculty and students from the University of Vermont they're gonna briefly uh, come in here switch places with our terrific panel our terrific panel will be back for the final segment of the show, but let's grab a break right now. And, uh, you know, if you're enjoying yourself here at the study, we can even like do that kind of thing. We'll be back in just a few seconds. And we are back. We're here at the study on Chapel Street in New Haven. We're here at the New at New Haven's wonderful International Festival of Pancakes, Arts, and Ideas. Uh, 
They come here every year, and there's hardly any pancakes. However, there are people from Vermont. They always bring maple syrup, so um, <laughs> we're going to introduce uh, them to you. Natalie Newart is a lecturer at the University of Vermont. She's brought uh, two of her – well, she's actually brought a lot of her students down here. Uh, two of them are here on the show. Caitlin, what's your last name, Caitlin? Caitlin Durkin. And Dan, what's your last Daniel name? Daniel Reinstein. Okay. So, um, Natalie, what are you guys doing here? So I got this idea a few years ago to teach a class called Aesthetics of Live Performance. I teach in the music department at UVM and I also run the concert series. Mm -hmm. And um, thought it would be fun to take a group of students down to a festival and, you know, just really immerse them in live performance. Three, four, five things a day. And then sort of deconstruct it, tear it apart, what we've seen the next day in the classroom. And at first I had the idea of going to an international festival like the Galway Festival or Luminato in Toronto. I thought it would be really fun. A great way for me to get an international trip. But um, I realized there was what was truly an international festival four hours from home. Mm -hmm. And um, thought, well, let's try it out here. And we did it two years ago. It was a great experience, and mm. now we're repeating it. So um, really, it's all about, I think Chad was saying, you can expose people to a huge amount of live performance in a real short period of time. That's what the festival atmosphere does. Mm -hmm. And this has just been a great experience for us. And before I turn to Dan and Caitlin about that, too, I mean, what kinds of questions are you asking them to ask? of themselves. Yeah, um, we've really covered a lot of ground in the classroom. Um, you know, when we were talking about the Ani Chan and what, what that brings out in yourself, what you learn from yourself. Um, we, we've been reading a essay, book of essays by David Mamet called Three Uses of the Knife. Um, it's kind of an infuriating but brilliant book. And um, one of the things he talks about is um, one of the things that art does is it exposes truth. Mm. So we've been trying to find truths uh, about social and economic conditions, about philosophical ideas, um, about things that affect you personally in an intense way. So for us, a lot of our discussion has been around that. We also talk about venue, um, how seeing something in a different venue greatly affects the event. Um, we're reading David Burns' How Music Works, which talks a lot about venue. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's kind of a combination of things, but I'm always amazed by what they come up with in class, and there's no lack of conversation. The class could go for six hours, not two and a half hours. You know, it's funny you mentioned David Byrne, because last night we were, all four of us were at this thing that we're going to describe to you a little bit better in just a second, um, where I suddenly realized that the creator of it was kind of floating around in the audience, the quote-unquote audience with us, Oni Chan was with us. I saw David Byrne's musical about Imelda Marcos yeah. uh, when it they debuted in New York, and it's you know it, there's not a fixed audience point there. They're constantly pushing these platforms around and pushing the audience into various places and configurations and separating people up. And I suddenly realized David Byrne was among us, uh, just like taking some notes and stuff like that. So it's interesting when you see the creator there. Uh, I also want to point out, as you guys, they made faces when you mentioned David Mamet. I don't know um, how that's been going, but David Mamet doesn't allow talkbacks at his things. We just talked about this recently on this show. Like, he, like if you're producing his show, you know, in Vermont, and you have a talk back afterwards, you get a letter from his lawyer. He'll shut your behind right down uh, or fine you or something. So he's not, he doesn't, the pedagogical part of this is complicated for him. He's, he's a really opinionated guy. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. Um, so let's talk a little specifically about this. And I think this will be fun maybe for the listeners too, just to kind of get a sense of what we went to. Um, we were uh, at 6 p.m. yesterday here, across the street from here at the Eisenman uh, Theater. And 
I'll try to set this up and then maybe you guys can, can help me out a little bit. Um, the, the notion is we walked in and we were essentially divided into four groups, told that we were going to play a game um, that there was sort of an apocalyptic quality to this. Uh, there was a, uh, also, there were people on iPads who were ostensibly in Hong Kong uh, trying to give us advice about things. There was a reclusive game maker or master named Jason, I think it was his name, who would talk to us over the PA system. Uh, his best friend was, was supposedly kind of trying to help us understand what was happening. There was an element of us being human mahjong pieces. Um, eventually, there was uh, a moment when weapons came out. There were canisters that we had to open using clues. What else, Caitlin? What am I missing? Um, you did pretty well. Um, <laughs> quarantine. Yeah. Oh, there was a quarantine. Oh, yeah, yeah, so the there was a SARS yeah. outbreak in the middle of the thing. We were handed right. those disease masks to wear over our mouths and noses. Uh, yeah, there was a quarantine. Some people were grabbed away from us. Uh, the teams were constantly reshuffled. I don't know. So, so Caitlin, I'm going to have you and Dan talk about this a little bit. I think one thing we all agree now is that this was less about the ostensible structure of the performance and more about what we brought into it. Oh, totally. We talked about that in class a lot today, um, how very much like who you are as a person coming into that performance um, affected how you interacted with it and how each of us had a very different reaction and response like some of us were very competitive some of us like dropped the competitiveness either because of our own personality and the way that we deal with conflict or stress mm -hmm. and then also like what we wanted to get out of the per performance like personally I knew I wanted to like be present for what they were trying to do and give us mm -hmm. so I was less involved personally in the game mm -hmm. and more involved in like what message they were trying to get across so that mm -hmm. was yeah Dan what about you how did oh, you oh yeah that, well it was incredibly intense um, <laughs> especially the, the I would call it stressful effort. would you call it stressful yes it no. was um, I would say stress played a major key in determining how people functioned as pieces of their performance so yeah. not only were you a Mahjong piece not only were you a, a battleship piece theoretically but you were also a, a piece of the artwork and mm -hmm. the stress that they put you under allowed you to kind of like become maybe rise from the ashes per se become um, the the piece of art that like function together. It was a very like group dynamic under stress performance was what I noticed the most. I mean, I, I just, I love puzzles. I wanted to win, but that was very difficult to do. In, and you know, Caitlin, there are some um, performance pieces or any kind of art piece where you can sort of say, well, you know, each, each time, each iteration is a little bit different. Here, I would say, I'm guessing each performance of this thing bears no resemblance or very little resemblance to the one that went before, right? Oh, of course. Um, it. We, we were even talking about with um, the performance piece that's right next door, mm. um, the Chaos Project, yeah. like how interesting it must have been to be those performers mm. and seeing a new group of people come in with however they come in off the street, like mm -hmm. whoever they are and whatever they bring with them, if they've seen a bunch of performances, if they haven't, if, you know, what just happened outside on the street that made, you know, what, they, what did they come in with? Mm -hmm. um, and it is intensely different every single time. And I think that's so intriguing. Well, Natalie, we, it was, we were, 
ran into each other on Chapel Street too, and you were saying, I think this is an interesting question. Like, the, because the audience in a situation like this is a massive part of the content of the piece, audience reaction and behavior, you know, how everybody plays this game, what they decide to do, what decisions that they make. You were sort of asking, what would happen if you really tested the limits of this, right? Yeah, I was really tempted to send it off the rails. And one of our students did. He broke a rule, which is that you were, and it was unwittingly, he, I think he didn't hear the rule, but there was like at one point where they said, if, you're, if you've unlocked your team leader, you could take a gun and shoot someone. <laughs> so one of our students, he didn't hear the unlock the team leader part, so he just grabbed a gun and shot someone. And it was really interesting to see it sort of go off the rails at that moment. And it could have gone completely off the rails. But one of the things I found that was interesting about it was that the creator seemed to want to impose some kind of structure on it. Mm. Like it had a dramatic structure to it. Whereas the piece we went to that afternoon with the rubber bands, yeah. the creators seemed like these wise observers to me. Mm. And they, they were, the art to them was letting it go off the rails. Whereas this felt, a little hard to figure out what they wanted from you. I actually, we, we all agreed that the two performances should have swapped names. That the, <laughs> the, the second one should have been the Chaos Project and the first one should have been Never Stand Still. Right, we should just, for context again, I should explain that when you arrive at the, the Ani Chan thing, which is called yeah, Never Stand Still, um, you are not only divided up into four teams, but one of you is kind of arbitrarily plucked out as the leader. That person is kind of chained to a station with like kind of a handcuffy type arrangement. So that, that was what was being referred to. Yeah, you have to find some way to uh, unlock the leader so you can get the gun if you want the gun. Um, but this isn't as, as <laughs> I mean, they're not real guns and it's not real SARS and Nerf, it's all art. Nerf guns. Yeah. Although, I mean, this once again, I mean, you guys were talking about this out on the street too. It's a really interesting thing. Dan, you were saying you're the kind of person anyway who watching a movie might have to remind yourself that it's a movie. Yeah. So, so, and that's, there's an interesting tension between this artwork here and that as an audience member, right? Yes, definitely. I mean, there were times during the, um, I hope I'm saying, no, not Chaos Theater at the Never Stand Still, yeah. where I was thinking, am I allowed to interact with this prop? Is this, is this part of it? Because there was a part where we were in the SARS tent and we were breaking open this box using a code that we found in a letter from the um, person's grandmother. And, <laughs> and in, inside there was a little Etch-a-Sketch with something that said, I don't want to be Jacob anymore. And it was signed Jason. Mm. And one of us went, Is, can we take this apart? And when we touched it, the, the words erased. And we thought, oh no, did, did we just destroy a prop? <laughs> did we just break something? Oh. And I thought it was really interesting. The, um, the, the, the chaos theater felt more like group dynamics observed with freedom and lack of guidance mm -hmm. and the um, never stand still or I'm probably messing up the name but the it, felt like, yeah. it felt like observing group dynamics under pressure and constraint right. which was really good to have them like one after the other because I felt like we made these physical bonds with rubber bands <laughs> and then we're like allowed to pull and push right. and then we were chained down and interacted that way. Well but Caitlin, I'm also thinking, and it's prompted a little bit by something that Dan said earlier, you know, whenever we interact with a piece of art, we have to make a decision about how much we're going to be manipulated by it. And there are some people who basically sit there in the audience, if there is an audience that you can sit in, which isn't the case here, and go, well, I'm not, I'm not buying that, you know, or if it's a scary movie, you think, 
I'm just not going to be scared. I'm, I'm not going to let that happen. You know, this is all just actors anyway. And, and there are other people who give themselves into this situation. Now, this, this one particular piece, this Never Stand Still, there is, there's a sense of that there is almost a sense of threat. You know, that like things could go drastically wrong. Yeah. Um, and, and you ultimately, as an audience member, also have to decide how much you're going to participate in that, right? Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of control that you have as an audience member, um, I think, um, in how much you give to the performer and how much you buy into the entire piece itself. Um, wow, and I just lost my train of thought. I never there thought of myself as an audience member, you ever. No, that. I thought of myself as a participant. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. Right. I mean, that night, we, after everything, we went to hear Wu Man and the Miro Quartet. I mean, that was when I felt like an audience member for right. the first time all day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, all right, we're going to have to grab a little break here. How about a big round of applause for the University of Vermont crew? Thank you. Let me tell you about what we're talking about next week. You're going to need to get an early start that day to get down for the conversation that we're having. But uh, no, that's all right. You're free. You're free to go. You don't have to keep doing this program. Um, all right. We'll take a little break here and we'll come back. We're back. We're back here from the beautiful lobby of the beautiful study in beautiful New Haven on beautiful Chapel, Chapel Street. We're here um, to talk about the uh, New Haven International Festival of Pancakes, Arts, and Ideas. And um, I have to say a few thank yous, too. I have this great crew of people that we come down here. We set up a, well, I say we. They set up a radio show. I walk around and talk and drink coffee. Um, so uh, two great producers are here on site, uh, Jonathan McNichol and Betsy Kaplan. Uh, we've got uh, some great interns here as well today, Tim Cohn uh, and Carmen Baskoff. And we've got uh, Gina Matruda back at the mothership making sure we stay on the air. Who else? Am I forgetting anybody? No, oh, I think the way, just all you, just, you guys did it all by yourself. Anyway, thanks very much for doing this today. You guys are great. It make, makes, makes it seem really easy to have great producers. Um, all right, so back uh, on uh, the panel with us are Christopher Arnott, who writes about theater for the Hartford Current, Lucy Gelman, reporter for the New Haven Independent and host of WNHH Radio's Kitchen Sink, and Chad Herzog, who's director of programming for the International Festival of Arts and Ideas and Pancakes. Um, and so... Um, we should say, we were just talking a little bit about these two kind of counterposed works of art that are being performed across the street at the Yale Art School. Um, one of them is that uh, very anxiety-provoking game that we were telling you about. The other one is this very kinetic um, experience of physical art. Uh, and and uh, so and so there's a, a connection to the Yale China program, right, Chad? That's right. These are our fellows. So the International Festival of Arts and Ideas and the Yale China Association have fellows that we bring to New Haven from Hong Kong every year and what we've heard about are three of the fellows our fourth fellow is on the New Haven Green Debbie Sham is her name and she has a, a project that is equally as compelling and a lot of fun and also has to do with play but these are these are our fellows from the Yale China program so you know the, the, this festival is at an interesting moment right now where um, it's been around for a while it's uh, changed in certain ways and um, the person most prominently associated with it the person who's done many of these shows with us Mary Lou Oleski is moving on from it she's actually going to devote her life full-time to pancakes from now on I think she's <laughs> opening up a pancake shop but and maple um, syrup yeah and maple syrup too and so um, it's an interesting time to kind of talk about this and talk about 
what the festival is, what it can be. And I know, Lucy, you have some very specific ideas about how the festival interacts with the city, how it could interact more with the city. Yeah, I, I think absolutely there's a time. You know, one thing, Colin, that you didn't mention, but that's on everyone's mind is, uh, for better or worse, probably worse, the Connecticut budget is not looking good. Mm -hmm. And it's not going to start looking good probably within the next five years. And so uh, Arts and Ideas is, Chad, I think it's fair to say, reevaluating what it is, thinking about what, you know, what it wants its future to be and how it wants to interact with the landscape of the arts in New Haven. And I know one thing for me that I wonder about is this question of accessibility and the relationship with the community. So, um, so one thing that I've noticed is at uh, the ticketed events, more than the free events for Arts and Ideas, often they are very accessible and understandable, but sometimes I'll look around and the audience looks a lot like me. So I'm a 20-something middle upper class white woman. And, um, and for me, there is an ongoing, um, I, I, I think we recognize that there's a presumption in the arts that the arts are accessible to those who can afford them, and that should not be the case. And I do think Arts and Ideas is thinking about that and working against that in, um, you know, heart heartening ways. Um, but I, I also think there's a difference between saying, well, we're bringing this accessible work here, the doors are open, and saying, here, I'm going to lead you in, and I'm going to take you by the hand and show you how this piece is as much for you as it is for someone who looks like me. Um, so, so that's one thing. And, and then I also think um, there needs to be a little bit more listening to the community. And I, I don't mean the cranky naysayers who are mm -hmm. in the community. If they're listening to the show, they probably know who they are. Um, but, uh, but listening to uh, different neighborhoods. So New Haven is sort of a, has a lot of micro neighborhoods and they all need different things. And so I think in the arts, sometimes we see an assumption, an organization that maybe makes assumptions about what a majority African-American neighborhood needs or what a majority Latino neighborhood needs. And so going forward, um, I, I would like to hear you know more town halls, more forums. Um, Bill Cosby is gonna be doing town halls next year. <laughs> I'm sure you'd more, be able um, to come here. More, more input from the community. And, and that, you know, that's a two-way street. So it, it also means community members coming forward and talking about what they need and what they want to see. So, Chris, I'm wondering, I mean, how much of that burden is fair to make a festival like this? I don't, I don't, you went to some of those festivals in Europe. My sense of them is, you know, artists come in from all over the world. They perform their things. Some of the people from the community go. People come as tourism. The local merchants make some money out of this, and then that's sort of it. It's a very accessible festival. I mean, I don't want to put the onus on the audience either. Like, you, like you should know that this is good stuff, and you should show up. But it's a pretty varied thing, and always has been. A lot of it is outdoors. A lot of it is free, and. I can't name a festival, and I, I, I'm a festival junkie. I don't go to a lot of them, but I, I read about them, which you is festival, really weird. You festival with some regularity. I just, I, it's hard to find a festival that ha, that has so much social relevance. Actually, like a lot of the ideas stuff, is you know programmed around stuff you know in the news now, and you were just talking about pieces about war, about community, about gun control. Um, the, yeah, I, nobody sees in, in the regular year. I mean, this is a summer festival with this stuff. So um, I would argue for relevance and accessibility. And yeah, a lot of white people in the seats, um, that's something that all theaters are dealing with all the time. John, I don't know, you guys do have a moment, there's a change of leadership, there's a chance to, to have some pretty fundamental conversations about what you guys are doing. 
What do you see on the horizon? We do, and we've been doing a lot of listening. I think that's something that since uh, my arrival over the last two years, that my ear has been to the ground and it, it has been listening. And I think you could see some of that in the programming this year. At least I hope you could. I will also tell you that there are festivals around this world, Lucy, that would love to have 20-something um, women in their audiences because guess what? 20-somethings don't go to a lot of festivals or a lot of performing arts. So um, people are knocking on our doors just as they're knocking on our doors about what it is and how we're able to create audiences that don't look like them. Um, and I think Black Girl is a, a very good example of that. We had Camille A. Brown and Dancer's Black Girl Linguistic Play. There were, there were not white people predominantly in those houses, those sold out houses. Um, we saw the same thing happen with Belonging. They were not our traditional looking festival goers. In fact, um, our festival goers were a little ticked off that they couldn't get tickets because we had sold tickets to, to everyone else and they waited. And that's something that this festival has created this year is um, because it is a different festival, because the Connecticut state budget is in flux and we're not sure what to expect, we have had to hit this reset button. And when we've hit this reset button, we've, we've condensed our programming a little bit. We've done new programs by listening, by creating these altered spaces programs, by focusing on the regional artists that are coming to our communities. And um, in doing so, we've created more demand for our programs. Our ideas programs have, have gone out with a, a huge hit this year. Um, our, uh, again, our, our ticketed programs, we're seeing people just uh, flock to them. You know, if you don't have your tickets to Leo tonight, I'm sorry, you're not going to get them. It's sold out. <laughs> if you don't have your tickets to tomorrow at 3 o'clock, you better buy now because there's few remaining. Um, and that's, that's what this festival has been able to do. But it is a time that we're changing, and, and we're in a constant change. And we're in a change from being a, a festival that happens in June every summer to really looking at ourselves as this community engagement program and, and this organization that engages our community in New Haven throughout the year. And um, that's, that's what we're going to continue to do, whether it be under new leadership today or new leadership years from now. You know, I, I, one of the things that I struggle with, with any kind of festival, but I think this is one of the things that this one struggles with, Lucy, too, is they're kind of, in a way, you could almost say there's two festivals, right? There's one mm -hmm. that's taking place on the New Haven Green, and it's very accessible, and there's a lot of people coming to it, and a lot of it's just not ticketed and stuff like that. And then there's this stuff that's happening really... One of the problems with the New Haven Green and Yale is that they're right next to each other, but they don't really face each other. There's this, this forbidden, you know, forbidding wall of oh, the yeah. old campus there. Yeah, I mean, we talk about the two cities all the time. Yeah. So, and, and so, yeah, well, you talk about it a little bit more. To me, that's, like, I, I want to see everything that's here bleed into there, but there's a, almost a structural problem with that. Well, I, I think the best events, Colin, sort of get back to that first anecdote that you shared. There's, there are the events where there is some overlap. And Chad, I do want to say, I've, I've noticed and, and loved the events that sort of intersect, so the events that are held often on the green or ideas events that are held downtown that are free, that intersect with programming that's happening, with arts programming that's happening. I mean, I, I find that very heartening. But I do want to push back, Chris, a little bit, because when you have an ideas event that is very topical and that is very accessible in theory, but it is held at the Yale Center of British Art or the Yale Art Gallery, those are physical spaces where people in New Haven still feel that they cannot go and they are not welcome. I saw August Wilson's uh, widow yesterday at the Yale, Yale uh, Art Gallery and it was full and it was largely African American. And, and that's a credit to the festival. I mean, they, they didn't get Neil Simon's wife or something. <laughs> No, I think, I think also, Lucy, that yes, yes, Yale has been a barrier for, 
for all of us who are trying to engage audiences in this community. And um, y'all can thank the festival for helping do that because we are able to bring people into their spaces that don't traditionally go in. But this isn't just a Yale festival thing or Yale New Haven thing. This is a um, problem that we have with the arts across this country. Oh, absolutely. We have built these fortresses for arts to be made in and we haven't done any kind of thing to um, include people or invite people into our fortresses or, or into these places. This goes back to Colin's original story about the, the kid dancing. Guess what? If, uh, if we didn't mess kids up from the time they were 7 to 17 and tell people they weren't allowed to dance or move in their seat or right. clap and only clap when you're allowed to clap or you're not allowed to clap now or whatever you want to do, we wouldn't, have a, we wouldn't be surprised about a kid getting up and dancing at 5 years old. We wouldn't be surprised about people not wanting to participate or participate in theater. This is about what we need to be doing as a society to engage in arts and culture. I would just like to point out that Neil Simon's wife was tied to me with a rubber band across the street. Um, and not as part of that particular exhibition either. It was just something that we mutually chose to do. Um, well, I think the other thing, I don't know, we're almost out of time here, right? Where are, we, where are we at with time? Two minutes. I mean, so this is not enough time to introduce this. It seems to me, like, back to that question of sort of the way that arts interacts also with any current environment. You know, when the arts are good, when the arts are lively, it just happens, right? Right. Like two years ago, was it two years ago that the, um, uh, the guy was doing the one-man Rodney King show? Um, mm -hmm. And Roger he came. Kinder Roger Kinder Smith. Yeah. yeah, and he, it, he came here uh, on the Friday after Charleston. Um, and Where he did, was. Yeah, mm -hmm. and we did the. He was from there, right? And and we did this show. And that's the great thing about the arts, right? When they're really working, that guy who was already doing this really kind of eye-opening and prophetic piece about the Rodney King thing, this huge one-man thing, is there here to talk about Charleston? I mean, it's the ugliest and saddest version of this, but that's to me the excitement of the arts. Yeah, I I think so. And there and there are definitely. I mean, I mean, Chad, I I don't. I, I think you're only hearing the bad that I see in arts and ideas. And that's certainly not true. I mean, I, I love the Festival of Arts and Ideas, but I always think that the arts have room for improvement. And you know, this was, before I was a reporter, this was the life I lived in. I lived in museums. And, um, and, and so I think the best examples in arts and ideas are those. So Regina Carter, three years ago, that was amazing. There was so much joy in the room. Um, last year, Plena Libre, it poured, and people came out in the rain and danced salsa for four hours. So you see those over and over again. But, um, but I, I do think, yeah, just, just thinking about it. Yeah, I mean, and, and as we said it earlier, it's different for everybody. Everybody has one epiphanic moment, you know, or five different epiphanic moments, but they're not going to be the same five. All right, big round of applause here for this uh, great panel. Thanks to my team. Thank you so much to the study, too. This is a great hotel, and it's a great place to do a show. <laughs>